What a start for Brad Hughes. 180 metres to go. Looking good. Oh, what a shot. What a shot from Brad Hughes. Oh, my goodness. What a finish for Bradley Hughes. Aging up the pass, joining the lead. An amazing victory. For the second time, Brad Hughes wins the Australian Masters. This time by five strokes. Today's guest on Bradley Hughes Golf is without doubt the most instrumental person in my golf instruction ideals. John Erickson from California played the Australian Tour and the Canadian Tour in the late 1980s and early 1990s. We crossed paths at events during that time, culminating in a battle royale in Windsor, Canada in 1991, where John and I played the final rounds together John won the event by one stroke over me with a 17 under par total aggregate. It wasn't until close to 17 years later when we joined forces on advanced ball striking, where we set about to help golfers become truly advanced in their ability to swing the club and improve their games to levels they had only imagined. The drill modules we passed on the students are now synonymous with improved play for golfers of any ability even PGA Tour players. The swing is not a mystery if you know the key components to using forces, pressures and physics. Join John Erickson and myself on this episode to learn the missing links that golf instruction avoids or misrepresents. It's a fascinating discussion inside the mind of the smartest person I know in the realm of golf. I owe much of my teaching ability to being lucky enough to cross paths once again as I made the transition from playing golf on tour to teaching golf on tour and to the masses of golfers who want to be better with their games. So let's roll with John Erickson. All right, welcome to this episode of Bradley Hughes Golf. With me today is one of my favorite people, favorite guests. It's going to be awesome. Listen, you'll find out a lot about the golf swing, basically what I taught and the person that I learned most of it from, John Erickson founder of Advanced Ball Striking. That was a website that we ran back in the late 2008, 10 era to 12 era. Took off really well, had a lot of followers and some great insight. And welcome, John. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on, Brad. Good to connect. And we have a quite a quite a past, don't we? We do, absolutely. We've, um... Quite an amazing story. It's an incredible story of <laughs> our whole thing, how we met. I mean, playing against each other on tour and then the IC thread thing and then going to ABS and, and all those years and the TRGA events that we did in Vegas and persimmon and blade tournaments that we put on. And it's really pretty incredible. Yeah. I was going to start off with saying like how, how we kind of met uh, in the future kind of, because I was just starting out, I'd stopped playing and I was starting to do some teaching. Didn't like the way I was teaching. And I just thought I'd start, uh, talking about the golf swing a little bit, kind of what I thought or knew. And there was a thread on this Australian golf site because I was Australian. I thought I'll write on an Australian forum. People may know who I am and maybe gain a little bit of traction there and see what where it eventuates. But there was a, a thread there. Um, let's talk lags golf machine. And right. it was a pretty epic thread, a lot of pages and, so I started reading it because uh, I thought it was intriguing. I, I, I loved a lot of the stuff that was said in it. 
it resonated with me and sort of made a lot of sense. So at the beginning, I had no idea who lag was. So it wasn't until I was 80 or 90 pages in that I saw a picture of you on the cover of a golf magazine somewhere with persimmon clubs. I think you were going to try and qualify for US Open with the old school stuff. Yeah, and right. I thought, holy crap, I, I know that guy. That's that's John. <laughs> so obviously you never, your name was not mentioned. It was always lag or lag pressure or whatever your code name was. on. Oh, the- you had a code name too, Two Masters, right? That's right. <laughs> no one knew who you were either, but it's like Two Masters could be anybody. And it's like, oh, that's Two Masters, a guy that won the uh, Australian Masters twice, Bradley Hughes. <laughs> okay. So when I uh, found out it was you, I got in touch with you and we started talking and you said, uh, I'd love, before we talk about how it all evolved, I want to ask you the question. I think you, I remember you telling me this story that you were playing out at the golf course near you, Mayor Island, out in California, mm-hmm. San Francisco, out the back there. And you're playing golf with, I think it might have been your girlfriend, probably now your wife. And a group caught up to you or you caught up to a group and you were out there playing with your wooden clubs and your old clubs and you hadn't really been involved in golf for a number of years. And then tell us what you saw. 13 years. Tell us what you saw. Well, yeah, just real quick. I I hadn't, uh, I retired from the tour in 90. 93 was my last year. And then I didn't play golf for 13 years other than maybe one round with my dad at Christmas or something. But yeah, I just left the game and I was just doing real estate and just other stuff. And just figured that was a thing in my past. <clears throat> Move up to the Bay Area, get married. And I was taking the ferry to San Francisco one day and I saw this golf course up on the hill on this Mare Island out of Vallejo. And it looked like an old school course of the cypress trees up there and all that. And it looked like a little cypress point up there. And I thought, well, I'll go check that out one of these days. So I drive out there. And uh, I see this beautiful golf course right on the San Francisco Bay. The wind's blowing and these just bowling alley fairways and greens that are like the size of your living room. And I'm like, oh, this looks interesting. So I, the next time I was out there, I brought some clubs. I walk in the shop and I'm like, uh, how much for, you know, a round of golf? And the guy said, you know, it's like an old military course, right? And the guy's like, well, if you wait 15 minutes, you can get the super twilight rate and it's $7. <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> seven dollars okay so i hand over seven dollars and off to the first tee i go and i um you know i was i kind of played at the end of the persimmon and blade era and a lot of balls and all that 93 i was still hitting the persimmon so literally just dusted off my clubs and the cobwebs and all that and teed off and you know i had some old balls in my bag and you know i think hadn't played in you know years and i think i shot 74 or something i'm like i can still kind of dink it around out here it was hard course winds blowing and uh played fairly well actually <clears throat> and then um so i just started playing out there maybe once a week and it was the first time in my life that i was actually playing golf purely for the love of the game i mean i'm not on a team i'm not on a high school team i'm not on a college team i'm not playing as a pro and have sponsors and equipment sponsors or people, you know, looking over my shoulder, like, Hey, how are you doing? Or whatever. I'm just literally just going out in the afternoon, playing golf in the wind. Nobody's around. There was nobody on this golf course. I'd, I'd maybe see one or two other people on the entire course. Felt like I had the whole course to myself. So I just started going out there once a week and playing. So this one day getting to your question, <clears throat> I'm on the uh, ninth hole and some young guy drives up in a cart. And he says, hey, do you mind if I uh, join you or play through? And I was like, yeah, we're just playing the last hole, the ninth hole. I was just going to, you know. So he, he tees off, 
he tees the ball like I don't know four inches high or five inches high or something. He pulls out this this driver that it looked like a toaster on a stick or something. And I was just I thought it was like a joke or something. I hadn't seen them. I, I wasn't watching golf or keeping track of you know I didn't I kind of missed the whole Tiger era. I didn't really I wasn't really paying attention. I knew Tiger was winning a lot of tournaments and stuff, but I'd once in a while watch a little bit of the Masters or something, but. But anyway, so there's this guy, you know, he's a 35, 30 or something. And he pulls out this driver and just swings as a horrible golf swing, but just launches this thing, probably hits it, uh, you know, 320 yards in the air or whatever. It looked like one of those drives Greg Norman would have hit back in the 80s, you know, when he was just piping those persimmons. And, you know, he, he you know, Norman hit, hit drives that were just ungodly. I just couldn't even believe the flight, right? And I'm looking at like, here's a hacker that's just hitting this towering drive. And I just thought, what? <laughs> like, what? What is going I thought it was like a joke or something. <laughs> and then I call up some of my pro friends like Chris Moe and Vic Wilk and guys that I traveled with. And I'm like, hey, what's going on with golf, man? Is that like these clubs like legal? Or I just didn't even know like what was going on. And they said, oh, yeah, you know, the drivers are like three times the size they used to be. And they're like, you know, 46 inches long and they're, they weigh 11 ounces and people can swing out of their shoes and hit the ball you know, just miles. And I talked to Sam Randolph and, you know, great player that I grew up with. And uh, Sam was like, yeah, the ball's going 15% farther. I mean, basically the combination of the modern ball and the modern driver, it's going 15% farther than it used to, you know, so for every hundred yards, I mean, 200 yard drive is now going 230, you know, 300 yard drive is a, you know, just going 350 or, you know, whatever. It's, so I'm thinking, well, are the golf courses 15% longer now? You know, what, what's happening with that? And so then I kind of thought, well, you know, it seems like the game's really changed. So from there, I uh, jumped online to see uh, what was kind of going on. And I was uh, taught by uh, Ben Doyle in, in the late 70s by the golfing machine, which some people would know about. And I was one of the early test subjects, like in hindsight, you know, I was one of the very early test subjects of that system. So myself, Bobby Clampett, you know, a few other guys, I think a couple of the guys at Oklahoma State were messing around with it. And, and so there were a few of us that were having some success. Bobby Clampett had the most success. I was probably, you know, second or third, you know, as far as like doing, you know, winning some tournaments. I won a few college tournaments and you know, made the quarterfinals of the U.S. Amateur and, you know, I was having some success, <clears throat> uh, won a lot of junior tournaments. So I was wondering, you know, if the golfing machine was still around, like, was it being taught? So I jumped online and I Googled in or searched for the golfing machine and up comes this website called I Seek Golf down in Australia that was like a designated to the golfing machine. It was a forum it was the only forum that I found on the internet that was specifically for the golfing machine. It was run yeah. by uh, Paul Smith down there, right? So I log on and I message Paul and I said, hey, you know, I was one of the early test subjects of this golfing machine. And, um, <clears throat> you know, what do you think about, uh, you know, me just posting a little bit on here? And he said, yeah, I'll just create your own thread. We'll call it Lags Golf Machine. And you know, I kind of had a little bit of my own ideas at that point because being an early test subject, you know, I kind of knew what worked and what didn't work about it. And then anyway, the thing kind of went viral, like you said, and there were, I think, 400,000 views or something. And then Paul kind of disagreed with, you know, I shouldn't say I should, I should say I disagreed with some of the things about the golfing machine as a test subject. 
and I said some things that were not maybe super favorable of the golfing machine. And he didn't like that because it was a golf machine site. So he shut, he locked up the thread, right? And at 400,000 views, uh, shuts it down. And that was the end of it. Well, somewhere in that thread, I had left my email address somewhere in there and people had written it down. And then I had 35 messages in my box in the morning, the next morning saying, Hey, will you teach us this stuff? Cause you know, your ideas are very good and we're interested in, you know, so I thought, well, okay. So I'll, I just came up with some kind of video lessons and, and I became the first internet golf instructor. I was the first one in the world to be an internet golf instructor. I mean, that actually had a program that could, people could work through, right? Just kind of by default. It wasn't anything that I planned. It was just like some people like, hey, can you help help me out? <laughs> You're ahead of your time. Yeah, I was the first one, right? So, um, and then, you know, you and I had got to know each other a little bit on that site. And I remember thinking, uh, wow, Bradley Hughes, of course, I remember, you know, we'd competed against each other on the tour in Australia and Canada. And, you know, you're much you know better player than I was. But, you know, I did beat you like one week or whatever. So I think, um, you know, maybe in your head, you're like, okay, well, this guy, you know, um, you know, he can play a little bit, right? I could maybe listen to him because he did beat me once. Didn't Lee Trevino say, uh, you know, never take a lesson from someone that <laughs> that can't beat you. So Brad's like, that. well, the guy did beat me like one time. So I guess I can listen to what he has to say. <laughs> no, but, but anyway, no, it's all fine. But um, so anyway, um, yeah. So then I remember you, you know, you coming out, you're in the coming to California, the Bay area. And you said you wanted to maybe still play a little bit more. And, and I remember you showing up on the deck where I was teaching and, I just basically looked at your swing and I thought, my God, what the hell did they do to your swing? You know, yeah. all the teachers you were working with, you know, whoever led better and led poisoning or whatever, all these different people and um, Haney or whoever, you know, you said you went to see everybody. And I just thought, well, let's just put you back to what you used to do. All right. <laughs> that, that was a fascinating thing. Cause you always said like, not in big shock, but you went, holy, like what happened to your swing? Like there was, I said, well, someone wanted me to not do this and someone wanted me to not do that. And you go, well, they were some of the best parts of your swing. So then you kind of explained it why. And obviously it's easier to try and go back to something that you've once done, like you have a, an instinct or a memory of it. It's hard to teach someone from scratch or the total opposite. So once you told me that and I realised that it was actually a little bit easier for my progression to try and get back to that point again. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I, I just remember you had that great footwork. I remember just being in awe of like how aggressive your pivot worked through the strike when we'd play together. And I remember you had like that Greg Norman footwork, which was just fantastic. I knew that was a good thing. Everybody else was like trying to teach against that. I I, mean, I didn't one of the guys tell Greg Norman to stop doing the 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 ground pressure thing. I think it was lead better or somebody went to see. Which you know, like a you know, remember how Greg would like grind his feet together and kind of pull that rear foot sort of in towards him and yeah, I think Butch Harmon saw that as a negative to his swing. Yeah, so right. Harmon, yeah, so I mean, of course, I knew that was a positive thing because that was you know you look at all the great strikers pretty much and they all had that kind of you know Trevino was doing that and Newtson and Hogan and you know uh, Peter Senior who I know we both have a lot of respect for he had had that great footwork and yourself and <clears throat> so. Um, yeah, I just said, well, let's get you back on that. And I remembered, you know, the first power board was just, you know, I cut a piece of a uh, shelf board, like 
24 inches wide and stuck it between Brad's legs. And, and now, now he, you have like a product you're selling. That's right. You know? yeah. <laughs> the, the down under board, right? That's it. Um, so yeah, we just started with a piece of wood and a piece of shelf board and, and I was, you know, working with that and, uh, it's kind of neat to see that sort of develop into a real product rather than just a home Depot, you know, go cut a piece of board, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's all, all that stuff. Um, and then I remembered you, you know, you started to play a little bit better and had some good tournaments and, and then you were like, yeah, this stuff works. And then I remember you saying, you know, you wanted to help out with the ABS side and I thought that'd be great. So then you had an epic couple epic threads on there, Bradley Hughes cuts loose and the other one, which are just fantastic threads of tons of information and help. And I thought, how cool is this to have a, you know, really accomplished tour player who's played on the president's cup team and everything to help out with ABS. And so, um, you know, until the site just died from technology, it got, you know, just collapsed over time because the language it was written on wasn't compatible anymore with iPhones and operating systems. And it just went away and, you know, and that was kind of the end of it. But now it's back after uh, one of our students revitalized the site, put it on a new platform and it's back. So we're really excited to have advancedballstriking.com back online. And all, Brad's got tons of great stuff on there if you want to visit that. Is that a repost of everything that was on there and then there's going to be new stuff added? Yeah. So we have, we've got everything saved from the past <laughs> up through like 2018 or something. And then uh, your site and all your stuff is there. Uh, so we lost some of the vault stuff, I guess, whatever was on, or maybe we could, you know, get that back on. If you, you probably still have those files, I'm sure that we can hand it over to, to our, we actually have a team now of four people that are working on ABS. So it's not just me. We've got a, a tech guy for the forum. We've got a tech guy for the, the teaching platform. We've got a, a student relations guy, uh, Neil. And then we've got a social media guy, uh, Justin down in Singapore, Justin Tang. So he's handling all the Instagram and YouTube and all that, that stuff too. So now we're actually a team and we can, we can grow and expand ABS or advanced ball striking or in the past, I actually didn't want to grow it because it was, it was getting too big for me to handle. And I, I, I didn't want more students. Right. You know, it's not a good business model, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like let's not grow this. <laughs> I remember, yeah. I remember at one point there because you know, like you just said, you weren't, you didn't want a lot of students. You just wanted to help a few and give some information and discuss things. And at the time, I was asked by the Mike Maves and Steve Elkington to come and do some stuff on Secret in the Dirt as well. So yeah. I. I sort of spent a fair bit of time over there as well as still doing ABS stuff. But yeah, yeah. So a lot of, a lot of people probably thought you and me had a big split that I went my way and you went your yeah, way. Yeah, right. I, know. That's, I, I get those emails like, what happened? It's like nothing happened. I mean, I, Bradley's teaching guys on the PJ tour and they're winning tournaments. I mean, that's what happened. Isn't that's a good thing. Yeah. And we it's used to get a lot of flack on the, on the ABS site, you know, cause to a lot of people, the ideas, you know, we've mentioned it. it, it's nothing new. What we talk about is nothing new. But in today's society, it's a little bit, maybe not as, well, it's called advanced ball striking. And most people probably think it's not advanced because it's not technology based and, but it's very <laughs> physics based and it works. And the, the thing that, you know, you, we always had these people write in and complain or basically mess up a thread by putting stuff in there that, was childish and bad taste and a lot of stuff. And I love your theory in that because some of them would write you later on and say, can you just delete my post that I made? And you went, no, no, that's part of the thread. You just leave it on there because it, it, it would ruin, 
the thread if you eliminated posts that were dumb or that people uh, said bad taste. Yeah, well, I guess that's the age of the internet. Yeah, what do they call the people? Trolls or whatever? They just come on and try and Trolls. create havoc. Yeah. yeah, so you're always going to have that. And I remember you were always fighting those people off and stuff, you know, like, just, like, you know, really like fighting. It's like, you're probably like, it was just crazy to me. Here's a guy who's won, won the Australian Masters twice and he's fighting with some 20 handicap or whatever. It's just like a troll on a website. It's right. like, what, you know, yeah. just, That's the internet for you. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I know, you know, like you said, you weren't, you didn't want to do a lot of teaching. So I sort of took the teaching aspect over and tried to go a little bit more mainstream and start doing lessons and things. And luckily I managed to find a little bit of success with a couple of people and it, it takes off. Um, you know, Brendan Todd was obviously awesome for, for our concept, especially for my teaching, because I was a person that was helping him. But for the whole ABS thing, it, really kept our noses in the in the system i guess for people to take note of so i'm glad that you're back on there doing stuff i saw some videos that you've just done with the be better golf crew on youtube and tell us about that they're, they're taken off pretty well yeah so justin tang who's our kind of social media guy uh he you know called up uh brendan and said look i i can probably get you an interview with john erickson you know the kind of reclusive teacher or whatever the mysterious guy who you know started this abs and no one's heard from him for you know all these years or whatever and brendan was uh actually on the abs forum back in the early days of you know 2009 to 13 or something so he knew of me and so he jumped on the opportunity to um <clears throat> to come up here and do his show because that's what he does he interviews golf instructors all over the world and then they give him a lesson and he posts it on youtube it's good for the instructor it's good for him and uh so i just became one of those people that he came to visit and he spent two days here we shot about five hours of material and then he's been putting up <clears throat> little um 20 minute videos of me talking about different things about you know the, the theories and golf and teaching him and all this stuff holding shaft flex and all the stuff that you and i were teaching and it's kind of gone viral again so you know i think there's been well over a hundred thousand views in three weeks or something of all the videos maybe more than that i don't even know last i saw one had like you know seventy thousand views or something in three weeks so that's a uh, quite a, a lot of exposure and people have been signing up like crazy again but now for abs the advanced ball striking course but now we actually have a really great teaching platform on uh, the Thinkific platform, which is just fantastic for teaching. It's all automated. People can download what they need. There's quizzes and lessons and time intervals for the modules. And I've reshot all the modules uh, with, with better cameras now, much more uh, clear, more professional, I suppose. Just uh, And I've condensed the knowledge down where I had all the supplementary videos as I would like, okay, I need to remind people this and that. I've combined that all into one, so it's much tighter. And it's just better. So we're calling it ABS 2.0 and the old stuff are calling it ABS legacy, a legacy video. So they have access to the old stuff too. So they can watch the old videos, which are basically all the same stuff. It's just that they're, they're the new ones are a little bit more on point, you know, with everything. All right. Yeah. Prepared. Then, you know, yeah. HD and, and less chit chat and more to the point. Yeah. Right. Right. And so it, it's, it's been re really good. Um, it's exciting, actually. We've just had tremendous, uh, you know, interest and people signing up and and 
So all the stuff that we were talking about is, you know, getting back out there. One of one of our fellow touring pros, uh, Paul Devonport, contacted me, and he he's going to be taking the class now. And he, he hadn't been playing that much, but he won five times up there in the Canadian Tour. All right. You know, okay. I kind of missed out on that because I was retired by then. I didn't know he went on to become a great player like that. He was always a good player, but yeah, I got some pretty- emails or messages off people like. Hey, I just saw this John Erickson guy and he's teaching your stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Hang on. He's like, he started the stuff. I learned it. I taught it and we revised it and we did our own separate ways, but under the same. Well, we had to because the ABS site crashed. And what are you supposed to do? Wait around for years to the site to come back or whatever that can't come back? I mean, you know, you had to go on and do what you had to do. I mean, of course. I'm glad. I mean, I was always thrilled to, when someone would tell me, oh, yeah, one of your students, you know, just won on the PGA Tour again. It's like, great, you know. I mean, it's good for the the uh, player that's winning. It's good for you. It's good for me. It's good for everybody. It's good for golf. Good for, you know, it's all good. You know, nothing bad about it. So um, I wanted to ask you the 430 path and everything, and that this is disgusting. Obviously, millions of posts of mine and videos of yours and what you'll see on the YouTube stuff. How did that come about in the first place? That was kind of the first thing that I almost read on the <clears throat> thread on I see golf and you could see it in a lot of swings and everything. Um, yeah. you know, it's hashtag to death. I hashtag it everywhere I can on social media, 430 pass. It keeps getting out there. But how did you come up with that original idea and based on your theory or feel or looking at the best players or just a a whole different idea or logic yeah um well i guess it was a little bit started with the golfing machine um one of the things that ben doyle and uh, my other teacher greg mccatton you know great golf machine instructors they were always telling me to to uh, hit the inside quadrant of the ball so in other words, if, if the top of the ball, when you're looking down at the ball, if the top of the ball were 12 o'clock and the bottom of the ball were six o'clock and the right side of the ball were three o'clock and the left side of the ball were nine o'clock, that inside quadrant between three o'clock and six o'clock, that right in there is where you want to be trying to trying to bring your hands down and rotate and hit that inside quadrant of the ball. <clears throat> of course, um, you know, the, the, they had a different ideology about that, that you want to kind of hit that inside and then kind of flip the hands over going through it and have a lot of active toe and a swingers release and a really problematic situation. But, but the idea of coming down the 430 line, what it's actually an optical illusion because the plane, if we want to call it that, that we're swinging the club on is basically running for most people, unless you're Mo Norman or something, most people are running it on kind of an elbow plane where you'd have your elbow or kind of going through uh, what they call the chi area, the Dantian in martial arts, which would be like three or four inches below your belly button, your navel. And that's kind of the plane that that people are swinging. A good golfer is swinging on that plane, almost like kind of going through your hips, right? So you're, um, because that plane is sitting below our eyes, we're looking down on that plane from a bird's eye view, okay? So when the club is moving on that plane and we're looking down on it from a bird's eye view, as that club is coming down the plane from the top of the backswing into the ball to our eyes, it's going to appear as if it's our hands and the club that are pointing at the 430 on the ball, that inside quadrant, okay? 
so we want, so we see our hands kind of coming down sort of out of our right hip pocket, you know, like what George Newton talked about. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really like that, what he said, you know, that the right hip pocket feeding the, so the shaft feels like it's feeding out of the right hip pocket and it's pointing right at that 430 line. And then as we, what I would teach or we would teach to rotate level through, then what happens is as the wrists uncock and rotate into the ball, the head of the club swings around and hits three o'clock on the ball, essentially, just slightly inside, maybe at like 330 because we want the ball to separate off the club face. <clears throat> Uh, it, it, the ball is going to separate off the club face at right angles to the club face. So we would want it initial impact to be slightly open. And then because the ball actually stays on the club face for, you know, a little interval, a few inches or something. So as that's coming around, then it would spring off the club. And then that's assuming that we're trying to hit a dead straight shot right down the line, which we know we don't have to do that either. Right. I think one of the, the fascinating things that you talked about there and what I try and explain to people too when I'm doing lessons with them is that the, the basis of what we're trying to get them to understand or see is from their perspective. It's not from our perspective, is it? So the right. 430 path is more from the golfer's and, viewpoint. Yeah, it's an optical illusion. So now if, if the plane of the shaft were running through our eyes, like if we swung the club on an eye plane, then we would just see the club going straight back and straight through more or less. Right. Right. Because our eyes would be in line with the plane, but because we're looking down on the plane, we're seeing a circle. If, if our eyes were on the plane, we'd be seeing a straight line. Kind of like okay. a long putter seems more pendulum yeah. than a. Yeah. Right. It would be, but nobody's even most Mo swung on like a shoulder plane, right. but his eyes were still slightly above the plane. So um, there's these optical illusions. So most people, what they do, so most people come down from the top and they they move their hands and the club shaft towards the back of the ball, three o'clock on the ball. But what happens is as they rotate through, then the club swings around and hits 130 on the ball and sends the ball left with a big slice or whatever. So the, we try and teach this the optical illusion that the hands need to, appear to be coming down the 430 line in the shaft and then it rotates and hits three o'clock on the ball rather than the hands coming towards the back of the ball which is instinctive for people oh, i want to aim at the back of the ball then the club comes down and rotates and hits 130 on the ball and sends the ball to the left so i you know you and i have tried to just teach people like look just forget about all that stuff this is what you need to see and this is what you need to feel and just trust us because we're like tour winners okay you're a 20 handicap you know I've won the Australian masters twice, you know, so just trust me. Okay. Just do what I say and I'll make you better. But of course people are, uh, you know, they, there's so much teaching on the internet now, now, and there's, you were the you know, first, I guess, sir. Yeah, I guess, you know, I was the first, but there's, yeah. Think about how many people are teaching online now. Right. But <laughs> you have a lot of people that aren't really maybe qualified to be teaching at a high level. I think there's a lot of people that are qualified to be teaching, to, you know to maybe take a 20 handicap down to a 10 or something but can you take a 10 down to a scratch you know like neil on our site he was a seven now he's a plus one and he's out winning tournaments in europe um you know that's pretty good right it's harder to to take a guy that's a low handicap it's hard to take a guy that's a three and make him into a plus one or two right it's, it's easier to take a guy from a 20 down to a 10 correct 
Yeah. And and I like the the theory in that what you said is that uh, I think we've mentioned it in other ways that just do the drills and then the drills can be boring they're repetitious but they're gonna outweigh thinking a golf swing and you can't think you've got to see like you said you've got to see those visuals and that's why they're really important I know one of the pros that I worked with Bryden McPherson I think I showed him you his uh, swing to you recently how much yeah, different yeah, yeah. changed over the over time and that was all not thought based that was all drill based he just did the drills and his whole working of his swing dynamics changed well it's just like any other sport right i mean any other sport you're gonna do do drills right i mean if you watch guys uh you know play basketball or football or you know you see football player linebackers they're pushing into those sleds and stuff like that you know i mean you know you have drills and exercises that you do to strengthen your body and to learn the right kind of motions and stuff i don't think golf's really any different <clears throat> you know what kind of drills that people use and that's you know to be determined i guess i mean people can do drills that are harmful yeah. you know, just doing drills it doesn't you know we, we want to do drills that are helpful not harmful and i think even drills that appear to be helpful can often be harmful. Like I'll give you an example. When I started out um, trying to rebuild my swing after I played down on the Australian tour and I realized I wasn't really getting the kind of compression and action on the ball that I saw the really great players, you know, you know, I show up down there and Greg Norman's number one in the world and Sandy Lyles down there and Ian Wisdom and, you know, Peter senior and these, you know, I'm hitting balls on the driving range between a couple of these guys. And it sounds like, you know, gunfire going off to my left and right. And I'm doing this little kind of throwy, the right, throw the right arm at it and just swing the club with this kind of flippy little release that I'm just trying to time, you know, and I play every day and I'm hitting 500 balls a day or whatever, and I can time it to a certain degree. But if I got to jump on a plane and get off after a five hour flight and I'm stiff and my body doesn't feel good. And I try and do that swing. It doesn't work. I'm just hitting it all over the place, you know? And then, you know, one of the big moment for me was at the Australian open at Royal Sydney. And I, what was that 90 or 88 or, you know, whenever it was that, 89. Yeah. So, and I remembered uh practice round, right. And 88, so people, 88. Oh, Ian Woosnam. Yeah. He just, he just flew in uh, from Europe and he just, his flight just landed and he's going to be here in 30 minutes or whatever. And he literally just got off the plane out of the taxi. His caddy, you know, brings his clubs over to the, the tee. He doesn't hit any warm ups, no, nothing at the range, literally just right off the plane. Right. I mean, after flying in from Europe, you know, just, you know, his eyes are bloodshot. I'm sure he's, you know, maybe had a few cocktails. I, I don't know. He just looked horrible. Right. Pulls this persimmon driver out, tees it up like three inches high, sticks it and just absolutely just hits the murders this thing right down the middle of the fairway. And I'm thinking, how is that even possible without stretching or warming up or anything? I mean, I, I was just completely like, okay, that guy has way better technique than I do. Because <laughs> for me, I'm, I'm like a week away from doing that, you know, stretching and grinding. And I mean, so, you know, I, I just saw a different kind of technique going on and what I later found out these guys are hitters, right? So hitters meaning that you're, the objective is to hold the flex of the shaft from the top of the swing all the way down to impact. You're hitting it with a pre-stressed shaft. Now you're hitting it with the mass of the club head. You're hitting it with the mass of the shaft. You're also hitting it with the 
the mass of your body. The whole thing is now coming into contact with the golf ball. It's a much more compressed strike. It's more repeatable. It's more reliable. It's easier to time the, the rotation of the club face into the ball with just the, the shoulder and pivot rotation. It is trying to throw the right arm out and flip your hands at it. So and that's on the body. Yeah. Just, just close it up with the body. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I wasn't doing that. I had steep shoulders. And I was throwing the right arm at it and timing it. And, you know, I, I, I was streaky. I'd have my good weeks and then I'd have weeks. I'm just hitting it sideways. But I think when you're out on the tour, you don't want to have weeks where you're hitting it sideways. You know, you want to hit it good every week. Yeah. Pretty much. You know, and then it should just be the ball striking should be there for you every week. And then you just wait for the good weeks with the putter. All right. right? No, we imagine. Putter and around the greens. And that's the weeks that you're in contention or you win. The rest of the time, you're, you're a solid ball strike. You're always hitting it good. You just wait for the good weeks of the putter. And, uh, you know, that the week that I won in Windsor when we played, you know, I mean, I shot 17 under that week and you were 16 under. I, uh, I only missed four greens the whole week. I hit 18 greens the first round, 17 the second, 17 the third, and I hit 16 the last round because I was a little nervous because I was playing against you. <laughs> so you still didn't putt good and still won. Yeah. So, you know, but, but you know what, I was never under 30 putts that whole week. Not once. I do remember a putt you made on the 16th though, to go one ahead. I remember you. Yeah. Right. Right. That's sick. Yeah. But you know, remember I stiffed it on 17. I knocked it in there like, I don't know, five feet or something. And, uh, and then missed it, you know, missed it. Right. You know, just didn't could have closed, kind of closed it out, but, uh, yeah, but all, you know, the whole thing about putting, you know, I think when, when's the last time that a guy's won a tour event and not been under 30 putts anywhere out? I mean, I, that hasn't happened, has it? No. I don't, think, I don't think that happens anymore. I mean, there, you know, George Newton, you know, great striker, you know, he won four times on the tour and I'm sure he just kind of did it with ball striking. You know, you just hit it in there close enough. You know, if you're just hitting it in there 10, 15 feet all day long, you're going to kind of kick a few of them in probably. Kind of like yeah. a Tom Lehman. He, he was kind of like that. He was not known as a great putter and wouldn't have great averages, but there was a stretch there where he hit it so good he could he could outperform them even without putting one. Yeah, Mac O'Grady was another guy, right? I mean, he won twice on the tour. I think, it was, I think he won twice uh, for a guy that just couldn't putt at all. I mean, you really would be better just grabbing like a four-year-old. Or he went left-handed, didn't he, putting? Yeah, and, you know, I have theories on that, like why he was doing that. But, you know, he says it was because of his dominant eye, I think, or something. But I think it was because, you know, he, he tended to miss a little long and left, you know, because of his, the way his swing was set up. So if he's up there in the – if you take a the, if you take a green on the golf course and you divide it into four quadrants, uh, the best – for a right-handed player, the best place to miss it is, is below the hole and to the right, right? Then you've got an uphill right-to-left putt. You're going to make more of those typically than you are a downhill left-to-right putt. Correct. Right. Okay. So if you set up your swing and your gear so that your miss is short, right. And I'm, I'm talking in general and not if there's a lake over there, or a big bunker or whatever, but, but if the pins in the middle of the green and, and your leave, when you just miss hit a little bit, it's coming up short, right. You still have an uphill putt. And if you miss the green and not in a bunker or even if you are, it's probably an easier up and down from short, right. than long left. Because I remember when we, had our rematch in the TRJ event. I lost that tournament on the sixth hole in Las Vegas because I, I missed the green long and left and made double, you know, because I was in, I, I hit it through the fairway on a dog leg and I had to draw it around a tree and I draw it too much and went over mm -hmm. the green left and I made double. And I, I remember that as like, yeah, that was, that killed me, you know, yeah, but yeah. that was a perfect, perfect example of where you don't want to be. You don't want to be long and left. And so as far as I'm concerned with, you know, I know it's not, 
not trying to rip on Mac O'Grady or anything, but just understanding his swing, his, the premise of his swing is that you're going to turn level from the top and you're going to straighten the right arm out on the downswing into the right hip pocket. He's not really flattening the shaft like Hogan did. He's just saying, look, keep the hands below the shoulder line as you rotate around so that you don't come over the top. But everybody does come over the top a little bit. And in Max case, if he doesn't get the right arm straightened out as quickly as he wants to, then he does come just slightly over the top. I'm not saying he's coming way over the top, just that little bit that he comes over the top sends the ball, maybe 15 feet left of the pin. Okay. And because he is aggressive as his torso rotation is, it shuts down the loft of the club face a little bit. So he, the ball goes a little farther than it normally would because it's slightly over so in other words, if Mac O'Grady hits, hits the ball in a 30-foot circle, let's say he hits 100 balls out in a, in a field and they're in a 30-foot circle, but Curtis Strange hits them inside uh, a 50-foot circle, okay? But if Mac's balls are skewed from the center of where a pin would be slightly long and to the left, and the majority of his putts are from long and left, okay? Where a guy like Curtis Strange, his leave would be, say, short and right. Right. So he has easier up and downs and all the ones that are around the hole, he's got right to left upfield putts. Trevino would have said the same thing about Nicholas. He said he felt like he could beat Nicholas because Nicholas would miss his, his wedges long and left because he was steep. He was very upright. Right. Trevino had flat clubs when his miss was down short. Right. And he's putting uphill. And and he felt like he was a lot better wedge player than Nicholas. So even though Jack was longer, Lee could beat him, you know, inside you know, 120 yards or 130 yards, right? So that's just an example of, it's not always about what appears to be perfect shots. Because if you watch Mac O'Grady on the driving range, you're just going to sit there and go, oh my gosh, this is the most incredible thing I've ever seen. That hits every shot perfect. But if you if you were to actually put a pin out there and you went out and, and marked where his balls were, I, I feel like his, his shots are going to be slightly skewed to the, a little bit to the left. Now I'm not talking a lot, just a little bit and a little bit long. And when I've watched him play, I notice that he misses long and left a lot, a lot more than other, you know, really good players would do. Now, is that why Mac maybe putted left-handed? You know, I don't know. I can't speak for Mac, but he does putt left-handed. Now, if he is long and left a lot, then putting left-handed would help him from those putts, that. right? It would be now the ideal place for Mac to be for, as being a right-handed player would be short and right. But if now Mac is putting those short and right left-handed, now he's at a disadvantage down there also, right? So that's why I think Mac maybe didn't have the career that he should have had right. because he was certainly a great striker, not a good putter. Maybe if he had slotted the club, laid it off a little bit of transition and worked on more, a little bit of a Hogan type transition to where that happens, not by straightening the right arm into the right hip pocket, but if he had flattened the shaft more like, you know, and used a wider stance. Now the way he would do that was if he'd gone with a wider stance, like all the great strikers did, most of the great strikers did, he could use weight transfer to initiate the downswing. And then he could slot the club and not open up his shoulders so quickly. But he had a he went with the narrower stance, kind of the figure skater thing, pull the arms in close, figure skater spins faster. That was his theory. It's a theory. It's a good theory. And it works. I mean, obviously it works and it hits the ball tremendous, but it does have a downside. And I think the downside is that is that if you don't straighten the right arm out on the downswing, then you're going to come slightly over the top. And I've seen that with kind of some of these Morad and Matt guys. I mean, I think it's slightly flawed is what I'm saying. 
it's not quite as good as people think it is. So we've we've talked a lot about a pivot a pivot driven swing. That's kind of the ideal that we try and teach, and that's more evolving around a hitter's action compared to a swing's action. So can right. you fill the listeners in to the difference between a swing, a hit, and why a pivot driven swing is kind of the ideal? Yeah. So um, you basically have you know hitting hitting and swing. So you know hitting would be you're trying to hold shaft flex all the way to impact, uh, which to do that, you need a pivot driven swing, which I'll explain here in a minute. The swingers release would be more that you're going to try and time the straightening of the shaft at the low point. So in other words, you're going to flex the shaft at the top. You see the bow in the shaft. And then as you start your downswing, as that shaft starts releasing to an inline straight point, you're going to try and time it so that the low point the shaft is straightening at low point. So in the golfing machine, one of the things they would do is uh, they think like taking the cap off a water bottle and you're going to kind of sling the water at the low point. It's going to come out of the bottle and it's going to come out, you know, right at the low point. So it's a timing thing. So in other words, to do this in theory, again, in theory, it works because if you have a steady, even acceleration, it should release the club at right angles to the flight line at the low point, okay? In theory, if acceleration is steady and even. However, for most humans, acceleration is not steady and even, okay? People jerk from the top, they go too fast, blah, blah. It's not a steady and even thing, and it disrupts the straightening of the shaft at low point, and that's problematic. And it can change under pressure and everything too. Yeah, of course, it changes under pressure and all that. So, some people are better at that than others. Some people can time this better than others. For most people, it's very problematic. For some people, like uh, I think you had a video of VJ I, I saw where he, you know, he's always had a very swinger kind of release. And it for him, obviously, it works really well, right? So he's able to time that. He, but he's also a grinder, isn't he? Isn't he a guy that just hits more balls than anybody? Correct. So he, maybe he that's why he hits more. What's that? He'll think he he thinks he's going to lose his swing every day. Yeah, I mean, for for a guy that has to go out and hit 200 golf balls every day to maintain their timing swing, like I don't want to do that. Like I want to be Ian Woosen that Ian Woosen that can just step off the plane, you know, after flying for 20 hours and just tee it up and knock it down the fairway at Royal Sydney without even a practice swing. You know, I want to be that guy. I don't want to have to go over and hit 200 golf balls to find my timing. I hope you're enjoying this conversation. Let's talk about how to become even better with my three eBooks. The Great Ball Strikers, 4.30 Path to Great Golf, and Ben Hogan, The Secrets to His Success. These books are now available. You'll see the links on my website. It's a true must-have for any golfer that wants to become better. Check out my members website, bradleyhughesgolf-members.com. And of course, check out John's website, advancedballstriking.com. Now back to the interview. So, um, so getting back to the hitting and swinging. So, so hitting is holding shaft flex. That's the intention there. And swinging is timing the straightening of the shaft. These are two completely different ways of swinging the club, two completely different release types. The, the swingers release is going to time the straightening of this shaft. This is going to be done by the pivot uh, from the top of the backswing down to the downswing, uh, doing a steady, even acceleration. The arms come down. You're going to time the right 
the right arm straightening, the right elbow straightens to help assist in closing the club face. So that's got to be really relaxed. And if we look at VJ, his right hand, it's not even on the club, right? It's like his fingers are falling off. It right. just shows that he's trying to keep, he's trying to keep the right arm out of it because it's so problematic. He just uses this really light grip, pulls it all with the left side, very much the left side thing. And then you have a lot of toe action going through the toe of the club just swings over really, really quickly. You have all this timing element, and when the timing's on, it's on, and you can hit the ball great. You can hit great golf shots, and you can win tournaments with a swinger's release. I've done as it. A, as a swinger, John, the club, you would generally see it try and fly off right of target line and maybe sometimes flick around too much left. Yeah, so right. that You're going to have the, the shaft of the club is going to go above plane post-impact. The arms are going to separate away from the body, and it's going to be a relaxed kind of a move where the club just flips over and you're timing an open place, hitting the ball and shutting really quickly. The arms are relaxed. So when you hear like, hey, relax, you know, people with a long back swing and swing slow and smooth and relax and all that's that's all swinger talk. OK, that that's all swinging stuff. Hitting is the opposite. Firm grip, uh, aggressive torso rotation, holds shaft flex. So with the hitters release, you're going to come down but you're going to be really firm. The, the shoulders are going to rotate level. The upper arms are going to stay packed on the body. The arms are going to, from a down the line view, or the hands are going to cut left. The club face is going to, is going to close into the ball. And then like a door hitting a, a door jam, it just stops and stays square to the club face as you rotate around because the torso is going to accelerate faster than the arms I'm faster. I'm sorry, faster than the wrist rotation and the hands can come into impact. So, so when we talk about hitting the bag on the 430 from the 430 line, that however um, speed that you develop from the 430 line hitting hitting the bag, the left shoulder is moving faster than you can do that. So so you can fire into a torso that's been delayed and accelerating. And now you're holding shaft flex and you're keeping the club face looking at the target a lot longer everything moves low left and around and then up into the finish so that's that's the hitter's approach that was what we've been teaching but the problem one of the problems is with the uh the scientific the scientific community when they do these research on tour players and this sort of thing a lot of this research is based upon swingers right okay so They'll, they'll talk about the club head, they'll talk about the club face, they'll talk about this and that and all the body parts and all the things going on, but they're talking about this other way that the scientific community has not caught up with the concept that there's a there's two different ways to do it. You're either, you're either hitting or swinging, you're either timing the straightening the shaft, or you're holding shaft flex. That's, there's only two options, there's only two ways to do it. And the scientific community hasn't really caught up with that yet. They, they need to first define whether somebody is hitting or whether they're swinging and then have their protocols for track man and flight scopes and all that stuff based upon a hitter's release or swinger's release, but they're not there yet. The other problem with the, uh, these machines and the track man and all that is that they're not accounting for the mass of the club head. So there's, they're, they're looking at the ball so that they're saying, okay, here's the spin rate on the ball. The ball's, you know, so many RPMs, blah, blah, this is the axis. And then they're saying, okay, if the ball is doing this, then the club head must have been doing this. In other words, it must have been coming from the inside. It must have been coming from the outside. The club was open. The club was shut. Whatever, relative to a straight line. What they're what they're missing is there, there's no algorithm or anything that they're putting in to to uh, consider the mass of the club head, right? So now 
let me get this straight. These are scientific people, but the, the formulas to a layman or even the science would be, let's say force is F equals MA. Force equals mass times acceleration. Okay, that's force. Well, guess what? There's an M in that equation. It's called math. So shouldn't, shouldn't the scientists be considering that there should be an input for the mass? If, if I come in, let's just say I come in at 100 miles an hour into impact, and I one club has a 10-ounce dead weight, and the other has a 16-ounce dead weight. You know which is going to hit the ball farther? The one that's 16 ounces, if it's coming in at 100 miles an hour. Okay, That is going to hit the ball farther than a lighter club. I mean, if, if we go back to the persimmon era, okay, and if you take the sole plate off and you take that big chunk of lead out of the club and then and then screw it back on and hit a golf ball, guess where it's going? Nowhere. Right. <laughs> it's going nowhere. You'll be lucky to hit that thing 50 yards and you'll probably be swinging that thing 120 miles an hour. It's going to hit 50 yards. It's going to do nothing. Okay. That lead is everything. The mass is everything. So you have to consider that. And then in the swing, the swingers formula would be, uh, I believe it's P equals MV. Uh, I'm sorry, M P equals MV, right? So P being momentum and M being the mass and uh, what I say? P, P equals, yeah, MV, velocity, right? So in other words, a given velocity, the, a momentum strike would be void of acceleration. Okay, you've got something that's just coming in at 100 miles an hour, 110, or pick your speed. In other words, two feet before impact, it was at, let's just say it was 110 miles an hour. So two feet before impact, the club's going 100 miles, 110 miles an hour, and at impact, it's going 110 miles an hour. It's not accelerating anymore. The acceleration happened from the top of the backswing, went from zero to, to 50, to 60, to 80. By the, You get three quarters of the way down. You're at 110 miles an hour, and then it stops accelerating. It doesn't it mean probably going to slow down, correct? Yeah. Well, I mean, it may not slow down, but you may be getting the the uh, the acceleration of the club up to a certain velocity, and then it no longer accelerates, right. and it's just yeah. a stagnant velocity coming in. the The problem with that is that at that point, you have lost the 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 pushing feel in your hands. That's against the the right side of the grip as you're as you're pushing for a hitter, if you're holding shaft flex, you feel a pressure on the right side of your grip as you're that in your hand. And that pressure allows you to feel where the club face is. Okay. That's what you and I would feel when we're hitting it good. We feel exactly where the club face is. We know exactly where the club face is, but as soon as acceleration reaches zero, we no longer have that feel in our hands on the right side of the grip. Okay. Doesn't mean we can't hit a good shot. We're hitting it with a momentum strike. Okay. There's no acceleration. You, what we do feel is the pull, the downward pulling of the club. Like if someone, if I were to hand you the club and you grab the head of the club and pull it towards you, like we feel that kind of centrifugal force thing. We feel the downward, but we don't feel the tangential. We don't feel that lateral push on the, on the grip. And that's the lifeblood of the good strikers. That's how we can sit there and, you know, I can hit a one iron off my deck and say, okay, five yard draw five yard fade and just pipe it every time. As long as I can feel that acceleration on the rear side of the, of the grip, I've got total control of that golf club. You know, and that has to happen through acceleration, not by that only happen through acceleration. Right. Okay. That's why hitting is better than swinging. Hitting, hitting is better technique. It's more sophisticated and it's supported by the great strikers. It's supported by Ben Hogan, 
Okay, it's supported by George Knudsen, supported by Mo Norman, by Lee Trevino, and a host of other guys. Very we could go on Roberto DiVincenzo and Peter Senior and blah, blah, blah. Um, all the got Gary Player, all the guys that were hitters. Um, it would, you know, you've got a long list of great strikers that were hitters like that, that had control of the club base. So now, um, is that um, based on that? Obviously, we try and teach a hitting thing not everyone's going to be able to do it but if they work hard enough they'll get pretty close to it is it it's probably you would say especially based on today's world with the equipment the lighter longer more upright stuff it is encouraging swinging rather than hitting isn't it well yeah i mean the i still think for iron play people would be better swinging the the older blades, the heavier stuff, flatter lie angles. You got more mass coming in. You're dealing with divots and all that stuff. It's just better to bring more mass in. You know, we've talked about the advantage of flat lie angles and all that. You know, the, the, you know, there's a big advantage there. I really think people would be better to to do that with a driver. I, you know, and, and I meant to call you and talk to you about this because you know you're out working with the tour guys and everything. But I'm going to guess that I, I just don't feel like there's really a solution. You know, I, I think what you've got to say is like, okay, the, certainly the lightweight drivers will bring more velocity, right? And the scientific community has figured out that if the head's a little bit bigger, so the, the players can swing a little harder, they don't have to worry about being precise. You've got a bigger, you know, hitting area, sweet spot or whatever you want to call it. So you can swing harder at it. You've got a 46 inch driver with a big head and the whole thing weighs 11 ounces or whatever. You can get, you know, 120 miles an hour in clubhead speed with the modern ball, and that's going to just launch the thing. But I have yet to see a tour player that can just nail that thing, you know, on a string day in and day out, week in and week out. I see guys just hitting it all over. And the reason that they're hitting it all over is for the, what I just said. They can't feel where the club face is. So now given the how, how wide are tour fairways now out on tour what's the typical what are they what are they cutting the fairways at now uh, i'd say 30 is pretty standard or maybe slightly narrow so 30 so 30, 30 yard wide okay so if you just figured let's just say you figure uh randomness just you're just going to swing as hard as you can you get 120 miles an hour and you're going to hit the 300 yards or whatever i mean if 30 percent of the balls go left 30% are in the fairway and 30% go right. Then you should be, you should be hitting 33% of your fairways just with just random probability. Right. And now if you've got a little bit of skill or whatever, then you can maybe increase that up some from there. But that's kind of what I'm seeing. I mean, you know, when we were playing in the, you know, I know we sound like old guys, you know, shouting at clouds or whatever, but you know, when you and I were playing, I mean, it wasn't about hitting fairways. It was about hitting which side of the fairway. You know what I mean? Like, let's take it down the left side of this fairway. Let's take it on the right side of this fairway. You know, it wasn't, I mean, if we, you know, could eliminate one side of the fairway, let's say we could aim down the left side. And if we hit it dead straight, we're down the left side. And if we cut it a little bit, we're down the left center. If we cut it a little bit too much, we're down the middle. And if we really make a bad swing, we're down the right side of the fairway. But I, I always felt like if I was swinging, well, I'm not going to miss any fairways. Yeah. I mean, I don't think about missing fairways. You know, now I, I see the guys on tour and I, I see them just hitting, missing it all the time. Uh, Brendan, one of the things that he was, uh, you know, from the Be Better Golf, uh, he mentioning to me that the, the statistics that they have now 
is that because the tour courses are typically set up a lot wide, oh, wider open than, than when we were playing, less trees and the rough isn't as long, that statistically the players are better to be in closer proximity to the hole. Like you'd be better to be 120 yards away in, in the light rough than you would be 160 yards away in the middle of the fairway. Correct. And that's what they're telling them with these stats now. They're, they're basically telling the pros that angles don't matter anymore. You don't need yeah. left side, right. So you just need to be as far, as far down as you can. And, and, and I think that they're probably correct. You know, they're probably correct with that. But let's face it, that's not going to work at like Royal Melbourne. That's right. You know what I mean? Or even I mean, the US Open a lot of the time. Yeah. So it, it depends on the course. I mean, you played the little Mare Island where I was playing. You know, I mean, here's, you know, two tour winners or whatever, multiple tour winners out there on a 6,300 yard golf course, and neither of us could shoot par out there. <laughs> I mean, it kicked our ass, right? I mean, it's 6,300 yard course with greens that are like the size of your living room, you know, and the wind's blowing off the bay and you got bowling alley fairways. If you miss the fairway, you can't even find your ball. I mean, you're done. You're going back to the tee or you're taking an unplayable. I mean, you know, you're off the fairway, you're in like sagebrush. I mean, it's not like six inch rough. I mean, you're reaching in there with a, a long iron trying to on your belly, trying to pull the ball out of the bushes. You know, I remember that down in Australia too. A lot of the courses down there were, you, you were either in the fairway and then there was some kind of scruffy grass for maybe, maybe like six or eight yards. And then it was just into like those manzanita bushes. Yeah, tea tree, they call it. Yeah, and tea tree, and you're just done. I mean, you can't even get in there. You can't even get in to get your ball. You see it, but you don't even want to go in. You're going to cut up your arms and your body trying to get to the ball. You just leave it in there. <laughs> I mean, so I don't really see the tour ever playing those kind of courses anymore. I mean, maybe they do on some of these other tours and Asian tour, or maybe there's some kind of B league tours that they still play that. I kind of like that kind of golf, you know? I mean, I love the, the variety. I mean, that the old game had where you had different kinds of greens, you know, you had to learn to putt on Bermuda greens when you were down in the South. And, and when the, when the mowers weren't quite as tight as they used to, you'd have this grain on the green. And if you looked one way, the green would look dark and you knew that the grass was like pointing at you. And if you looked the other way, it was shiny and it was going against you. And then all the combinations of side grain. And then you'd have those guys down in Florida and Texas that just kick, kick your butt because they knew how to putt those Bermuda greens. But you know, on the bent grass greens in the northwest, I mean, I'm sorry, in the northeast, you had all those beautiful bent grass greens. And then out in California, you have a lot of the poana greens, right? So you have, actually have a grass that grows a flower by the afternoon. And it starts to kind of like split. And then you've got like, you see that little kind of flowery look on the greens, like at Pebble and stuff with the poana and that four door and these those courses on the peninsula. That's a whole nother technique to put across that stuff, right? So we're now, I, I, what I see is a pretty homogenized thing. It's like, well, we're not going to host the PGA event here unless you guys can get the, you know, get your greens to run it. What are they running now on the stint meters? Do they even use the stint meter thing? Yeah, generally 11 to 12 probably. Yeah, every week it's the same, right? They're not, yeah. you know, they're not going to go out there and, and putt on seven or eight, right? Absolutely not. Never, right? But you, you and I had to do that all the time. Remember up playing up in Canada? Remember we went up to Fort McMurray and it was running about five. I think the fairways, had, the fairways are faster than seven or eight. You know, I mean, we had to really play under some extreme diversity, yet alone dealing with mosquitoes that were the size of the palm of your hand or whatever. Remember, remember the guy showing up in a whole body suit like with the mosquitoes? Yeah, the, when you when the club's logo is a mosquito, you know, uh, you know you're in trouble. <laughs> I mean, 
you know, that was all part of the thing. It was, it's like golfing the ball, like golf is an outdoor game, right? I mean, it's not an indoor game. It's an outdoor game and you're playing under, you know, a divert, you know, diverse conditions. I mean, you're dealing with weather, you're dealing with wind, temperature, altitude, humidity, undulation. You know, there's so many factors that, that are, that you're dealing with when you're playing, you know, around a golf on the course conditions and you're dealing with the pin placements. I always felt like when I tee off on I have three opponents that I'm playing against, you know, <clears throat> I mean, I'm playing, I'm playing the architect, right? So if it's Alistair McKenzie, you know, or whatever, Donald Ross, I'm playing the architect first, right? I'm playing the weather, right? Wind, rain, you know, whatever, sun, hot, humid, whatever. I'm playing the weather. And then I'm playing the greenskeepers pin placements, like how they set the course up. Are the tees back? Are the pins, you know, here, there, they set up tough or whatever. Is it Sunday pins or whatever? So you kind of have those, those three opponents. You have the golf course, you got the weather and you got the greenskeeper. You know, that's just you. Of course, then you're playing against your own mind and then your opponents or whatever. But but as far as just me on a golf course, if I'm just playing alone, I'm playing those three things. The architect of the golf course, the weather, and, and how the course was set up. And golf is all about adjustment. So I, I, you probably don't follow a lot of the social media stuff, but there's been a call lately for people to say that a divot shouldn't be part of the course. It should be a drop, a free drop, G-U-R. I mean, that's just an adjustment in the shot, isn't it? And it's, I'm sure it's bad luck, but that's what golf is. Because it's an outdoor game and it's an imperfect game, right? It's not like a basketball court that's indoor and the court is the same size and the free throw line is the same size, the three-point line is the same size, basket's the same size. Um, you know, trying to control those environments like hockey, right? You know, there, it's a, the rink is the same size, the ice or, or whatever. I'm, I'm sure there's some variations maybe in the ice, like some rinks are colder than others or whatever, but it's pretty much the same, I think. Golf, it's really radically, radically different different courses, all the setup and all the, you know, the luck elements are, it's just kind of part of the game. You know, it's one of the things you love about it. And one of the things you hate about it, like you get good luck, you love it. You get bad luck, you hate it. <laughs> That's cool. just kind of how it goes. Right. I mean, as far as divots go, I mean, you know, it's just, it's unfortunate, right. When Once you're in a divot, divot, I mean, people will be taking drops from anything if they ever brought that rule. I mean, what we did in the TRG events in Vegas, remember how beautifully that worked? So we just had, a, you know, for so those explain, that don't know. Explain what TRGA means. What yeah, traditional traditional rules of golf association. So we, so we had this little, you know, golf association starting. And and the whole idea was like to just get rid of all of the, basically all of the rules of golf and just combine them into one rule, like a universal drop procedure. So in other words, if you, if your ball's out of bounds or in a hazard or the ball's lost or, or anything like that, the penalty would be full relief. In other words, you would go to the center of the fairway, take a one stroke penalty, but then go back 30 yards. Okay. Three clubs, drop your ball and then play your shot. So the idea would be if, um, you know, somebody, it, it, trying to kind of make it a little more fair because let's, let's say that you've got a, a hole where you've got a lake right off the tee. Okay. And a guy hits the ball and you can tell that it kind of went over the lake first and then went into the lake and it went right off the tee. Okay. So now this guy has to drop two club lengths back, right. From where it crossed, which yeah. is right off the tee. Okay. Another guy hits a bit, hits it down the ferry, but a big slice 
and he goes into the lake also right at the about the same place that the, that the first guy went he gets to drop down there 230 yards and the other guy's got to drop off the tee box right so what we were doing this way saying look where, where where did the guy hit the ball okay we saw it splash out there you go back to the middle of the fairway roughly, you know, and then when a guy goes back 30 yards, nobody cares about how he's dropping or where he's dropping. So nobody it's basically where, where we thought the ball last probably finished. Yeah, you know, where was the guy hits it out of bounds, you know, hits it, you know, on a road or something. It's just like kind of, we can tell where everybody else hit their shots, you know, and this guy, he hits it about the same distance. Just Take go to where everyone else has hit their balls are out here, 230 yards or 50 yards. Go back 30 clubs, take a shot penalty. Nobody cares. Nobody cares about whether he dropped a yard to the right or to the left. He's back there three clubs. We're hitting seven irons. He's back there with a four iron and a one-shot penalty. So what it did is it allowed us to play with in a pro-am setting because we were playing with amateurs. Right? I'd be a pro in the group and a couple of amateurs, and we were getting around in under four hours. I think we also yeah. parted with the flag in. That's an innovation that they've brought in. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what I thought was interesting is that after they made all those changes a few years to the a few years ago to the rules, they were all the TRGA changes that we were doing. I, I think that somebody at the USGA saw the TRGA site, looked at that, and said, "You know, this is brilliant," and they just started adopting a lot of that stuff. You yeah, know, pretty the, close. Pretty close, you know. So. You know, are they going to give us credit for that? Probably not. But I know that they looked at it. Of course they did. And it works and it's better and it makes more sense. And, and they're they're saying the same kind of thing, you know, with local like at local golf courses and stuff. They don't want people walking back to the tee anymore. Right. Right. I mean, on your your Saturday morning game. I mean, if you if you're technically playing by the rules, then you have to go back to the tee and reload. But are you going to do that Saturday morning? Everybody's going to be screaming at you. Yeah. So shouldn't we have a game where, where you just set the rules to where they make sense for everybody, for the amateurs and for the pros? And we found that it worked really, really well in the TRJ events. Everybody loved it. We simplified the game. We simplified the rules. And if there was a problem, well, I mean, if there was a crazy thing like, hey, this hawk came down and landed on the green and took my golf ball in its mouth and it flew away. And it's like, hmm, we didn't put that in the rules. Then you have a rules official. You get the end of the round. You say, hey, this is what happened. What do you think? Well, what did you guys do? Well, Jerry just dropped his ball where we saw the hawk took the ball. Okay, you know what? That's good. You know, Or oh, that was obviously an advantage. Or a couple of the guys say, hey, I think Jerry dropped it 10 feet closer to the hole than, than the hawk picked it up. And the rules official, whether it's the head pro or just somebody designated would say, you know what, Jerry? The other three guys in your group think you kind of cheated on this thing. You dropped it closer to the hole than the hawk we're going to dock you a shot you know what i'm saying and then you just live with it just like a bad call in football or basketball or whatever you know i think it was a a, a really nice thing it, it didn't get the traction that we were hoping for but it did work for what did we do we did maybe four years down there at the trj events and we did yeah, one, in the I played year. one year and i know you did a couple before that yeah yeah and so and it worked really well I and mean, you know scores are about the same it didn't really affect anything it sped up play it simplified the game and, um, you know, we had equipment specifications where, you know, you had to play persimmon woods because, you know, the idea that golf was a game played with woods and irons, right? So the idea was that woods should be made of wood and irons should be made of iron, <laughs> right? I think we did uh, 56 loft was maximum, so you could... Yeah, yeah, 56 degree loft on the wedges. So, you know, no crazy 64 degree wedges and stuff. So 56 on the sand wedge and... 
just you know putter i have no long putters or anything like that just it had traditional to be, like a mallet a center shaft or a blade something like yeah that. just a, right just standard putters uh people were just putting normally or whatever and simplifying all of that stuff and then you know if you didn't like your lie in the ferry if you were in a divot it's like do you want to do you want to play it out of that divot or do you want to take a shot penalty and go back 30 yards right, right? i mean it's your choice remember if you remember right when we played uh, that, I think it was on the par fives on the front nine. I was on the cart path. That's right. Yeah. And I hit, I had, you know, steel spikes and I remember having to, no, no, I, I, my ball was on the cart path. Right. And, and I had to decide whether I wanted to hit it off the cart path or take the drop and go to the center of the fairway and go back 30 yards. And I could have just made a decision. I could have just putted it off the car path and not damaged my club. But instead I took out a persimmon to two wood. I knocked it on the green and made Eagle. <laughs> right. Remember that? What cart path? Yeah. What card path? Right. So it's just kind of like, you know, put the responsibility back on the player. Do you want to take the penalty? You know, I remember playing in the, um, I mean, I know we're getting a little off topic, but I just kind of an interesting thing. I remember playing in the Alberta Open at Wolf Creek. I think you probably would remember that course. But I remember hooking it left on a on a hole and I was um, <clears throat> I was in a hazard. Right. So I could take uh, two club lengths out of the hazard. But when I dropped the ball, I was still in like, you know, two feet of grass. I mean, there was no relief. It's like. I'm in two feet of grass in a hazard, but if I dropped it out because they didn't mow the grass outside the hazard, okay. I can take two club lengths and now I'm still dropping the ball in two feet of grass. In other words, I'm taking a penalty and I'm not really getting relief. Yeah. So with the TRGA, it would be like, okay, I'm going to take it out of the hazard. I'm going to go to the middle of the fairway, take full relief, and I'm going to go back three clubs. So it's kind of a little more than a shot penalty. It's kind of like maybe a shot and a half penalty, you know? I mean, I could recover. I could go back there with a four iron instead of a seven iron, knock it on the green, you know, maybe, maybe get up and down from 180 yards or 90 yards and save my, you know, save my par or whatever, but, you know, probably not likely. I mean, I don't think we had any of those, but I know a couple of guys we played with in that. They, they did a few of those drops and it was, it was simple. It's simple. It was 28 it, yards, it was, 29 yards, you know, 30. It's, it's all near enough. You're going back. And, and actually, you know, why the reason that we called it the TRGA traditional rules of golf is that I researched it all the way back to like the 1700s or whatever. And I remember in the golf club of Leith or Leith, it would be the English Leith. Is that right? Leith, Leith, whatever. And they actually had a distance penalty. That was one of the earliest rules of golf. It was something like, if ye find ye ball in the watery filth, <laughs> ye shall go back, you know, seven yards or more or whatever. It was like a yardage. It was like seven yards or more from the filth, the watery filth or whatever. And I thought, well, that's kind of, that would be perfect, right? We'll just do a yardage penalty. The reason that I thought it would be better to go back 30 yards, because nobody's going to complain about it at 30 yards. If the guy's going back seven yards, you got the other guys going back. Well, it's okay. Let's mark this off seven yards. And now you got to drop in this other mud hole or whatever. You know, you might not really get full relief, right? right. And then you're going to have a guy go, well, that was six yards or that was eight yards. Or when a guy's back there 30 yards, you don't care. Plus in <laughs> the middle. He's in the middle of the fairway. It's not like you're dropping in the rough again or doing. Yeah. I mean, in other words, you're taking a penalty shot, right? So shouldn't you get relief? 
you know, like put it back in play, like soccer, you know, when the ball goes out of the thing, you know, they, they, they put it back in play, you know, the guy throws it over his head and the, the ball is back in play again. You're not dropping it and you're still potentially in another bad situation. How about in bunkers when you have an unplayable lie in the bunker and now you got to drop it in the bunker again, right. and then you drop it straight down and it plugs again. I mean, that's not really fair, is it? That's not a good rule. So we just got rid of all that stuff. If it's plugged in the bunker and you don't like it, you can take it out of the bunker, go back to the center of the ferry, go back 30 yards and hit your shot. I mean, if you're in some of those uh, those stacked bunkers over in the old Scotland or whatever, you know, and you're down there and the, the lip's like, you know, six feet high and you got no chance of getting it out or whatever. I mean, you, I mean, people might hit five or six shots out of that before they get out. All right. I mean, just maybe, maybe you hit a pretty good shot and it took a bad bounce and went down into that bunker. And now you're taking four or five swings at it to get out. And it's not, it's cute, but it's not really fair. <laughs> it's not, it's, you know, I mean, you could try and get it out, but then do you really want to go back 30 yards and take a penalty? I mean, if you think you can get it out, you're going to try, right? But if it's impossible, yeah. Anyway, I don't know. I, I thought it was a great thing and it, it looks like the, uh, you know, the, it did have some influence, I'm pretty sure, on the USGA. I, I mean, I don't know that for a fact, but I kind of in, instinctively know that they saw the site and they said, here's some good ideas. Let's let's make some changes here. Because I, I think it was just a little bit too ironic that we just did that. And all of a sudden, the USGA is changing their rules, putting with the pin in. Because, you know, they used to putt with a pin in. And if you watch old Masters footage, you see Sam Snead putting with a pin in. And, you know, I mean, why not? Sure. Why shouldn't you be able to putt with the pin in? Remember, remember in the old, like when we were playing, uh, if, if the caddy was attending the pin and, and it got caught in the cup because there was some you know, sand in there or something and your ball hit the pin and went in, it was like a two shot penalty. That's right. I mean, that's crazy, isn't it? You got to get rid of that stuff. You know, that's just those those are the kind of things that turn people off of golf. It's like, you know what? This is this is just silly. This isn't good. And, you know, if they really want to make the, the game easier, then just make the hole bigger, make it the size of a basketball hoop. And then then three foot putts are just gimmies like 10 foot putts are gimmies. And that would speed up play, wouldn't it? But no, they're trying to they want to keep the game traditional. So, I mean, if you think about. Like, let's just say the Masters, right, they always say, oh, that's the, the tournament of great tradition. I mean, what is what is traditional about it at this point? I mean. The, the clubs have changed, right? The drivers have changed. The irons have changed. The ball has changed. The course has changed. The ferries have changed. The length of the course has changed. The, they change the greens all the time. The speed of the greens have changed. The rules have changed. The only thing that's traditional about it is at the end of the round, somebody puts on a green or end of the tournament, someone puts on a green jacket. That And then even that's not traditional. Didn't that start like in the late, I mean, the late 50s or 52, I don't even, 53. 53 that started with a green jacket. So even that was in it. So, I mean, if they're really concerned about tradition, then just play the game traditionally like other games that are traditional, you know, baseball is fairly traditional. I mean, I, one of my baseball friends, you know, that there's talk about the ball going too far, you know, the baseball is going too far. And I, and I said, well, what kind of, how much farther is it going? They say, well, we think that, you know, we're, there's scientific evidence that's suggesting that the baseball is going, but is going five, maybe even six feet farther than it used to. And so that's a lot of extra home runs, right? Five or six feet. 
right. Sam Randolph telling me that the golf ball is going 15% farther. In other words, it's going like 50 yards farther, not, not five feet farther. <laughs> I mean, think about that. 50 yards farther? You know, so, someone asked me, because, you know, this live golf's been on recently. I don't know if you're up to date with it or care about it too much. But I just watched it yesterday. The telecast was actually really good. It was all golf, no commercials, golf, golf, golf. Commentators were pretty quiet, except, you know, especially when players were hitting. They didn't give you too much info. It was, it was good. And I, I wrote it that a tournament aside, live aside, whatever, the telecast was great. I thought it was good. And then, you know, I've had people write me like, what are you loving about live golf? Why do you like this? And, you know, everyone's got their... I wasn't really talking about the event. I was just talking about the telecast. But so my response to one of the people was, you know, he goes, why do you like it? I said, well, it's not that I like it. It's just different. I said there's, and we've always talked about this, why isn't there room for different in golf? You know, if golf is inclusive, why shouldn't they have a persimmon tour? Why shouldn't they have a regular tour? Why shouldn't they have a live tour? Why shouldn't they have all these different things that all different people can participate on and I you know one of the best things I heard you say early on which I used to him was they have Formula One they have NASCAR they have IndyCar they have go-karts they have street race and they have all these different things why does golf have to be one form I don't think I don't think it should you know and I remember we talked about you know years ago I mean if there's if there's professional women's softball right could couldn't there be room for a persimmon golf tour where you play all the classic great golf courses and maybe they don't play for the amount of money that they do on the PGA tour. But if, if you put up a, you know, two, 200,000, 300,000 a week or something in prize money and a guy walks out of there with a 30, 40 grand or $50,000 check. Right. I think guys would line up for that. Sure. I think there'd be people playing and playing in those tournaments. <clears throat> Uh, then you might even create and someone might say, Hey, you know, let, let's fire up the persimmon making uh, shopping and we'll start making clubs for the players and steel spikes. I think, uh, I mean, how crazy is it that steel spikes are legal in the USGA, but you can't wear them on any golf course. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's crazy. Can you imagine going to the bowling alley and they say, Hey, I'm showing up with my bowling shoes. It's like, yeah, you can't wear bowling shoes here. But they're legal. These are bowling shoes. No, 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 no. You can't do that because it scuffs up our, you know, the bowling shoes kind of scuff up the, yeah, we have to polyurethane the thing. And yeah, no, 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 no. I can't, can't wear bowling shoes, even though, I mean, it's really crazy, you know, and why steel spikes? I mean, cause they grip the ground better. You know that we, you know, I think there's still a few guys on tour using the steel spikes, right? Yeah. Not a lot. Maybe only probably 20% at the most. Didn't I mean Tiger did for a long time? I don't know if he still is. Yeah, he but still has spikes in there most of the time. Yeah, I know yeah, Rory I mean, does. Bob Watson does. So you know they're legal, and especially now that you can tap down spike marks, right? So then what's the problem now, right? But if you show up with them, I mean, it's really, really strange. I mean, who are these people that are making these rules and making these decisions? And and these are just people. They're just people like you and me. Anybody that's just making these decisions, maybe a little round table of, I don't know, there's eight or 10 people sitting around a table at the USGA and they just vote on it. I don't know how they go about deciding on this stuff, but it's just, it's just people that are just sitting around making decisions. I think as far as a persimmon tour, I mean, you know, we tried to kind of get it going. I had a, 
three or four people that came forward and said, you know, let's talk about doing this uh, and putting up some serious money, maybe put up a million dollars and do $100,000 events around the country and at least start there. And then we could get some sponsors. And so it was kind of close to happening, but it kind of fell through, you know, four, three or four times with different people, mainly because their wife would say, "Eh, you know, you've, you've been in the golf and invested all this money and you lost a bunch of money here and there. Let's just not, you know, you're getting too old to do this or whatever. And it was, it was always like some other person that came in or they would say, my wife want to let me do it or whatever. But it could have happened, you know, and I was willing to jump on. And, you know, if I needed to be the commissioner of that tour, I'd be more than happy to do it. But I'd, I'd say at this point, probably not. But, you know, back then in 2010 or 11, when we were trying to get that, get some, you know, cause basically, you know, the conversation was, we have all these classic tracks that were designed at say 68, 6,900 yards, and they were designed for 250 yard drives. That's why the bunkers are positioned where they are. Um, that's why the greens were shaped the way that they were. I mean, if you look at the masters, you know, number 10 and 11, those greens were narrow and they're deep because they were meant to accept a lower trajectory, long iron shot, right? But then you've got the par fives, 13 and 15, say in the back, which are kind of about the same length, you know, a little bit longer, but um, you know, you could come in there with a long iron also, but the green is, has water in front and it's fairly shallow, right? So it's wide, but shallow. So it's more difficult to come in with a low trajectory shot into a shallow green than it would be on 10 or 11, where you've got a deep green, you're coming in with a low trajectory shot. And all the years that I watched the masters guys would skip it in. Like they'd landed on the front part of the green. It would kind of skip in. Right. It wasn't now I see guys backing it up on those greens. I mean, that's not how the course was designed. I mean, Bobby Jones and McKenzie, they would, they wouldn't like that. They wouldn't be happy about that. Um, so, you know, getting back to the beauty of the architecture, if you, if you take the Monterey Peninsula, for instance, in California with very strict environmental laws and all that, how could you ever secure land like that and be able to build what, like, what are there five or six golf courses that are on the ocean? I mean, do you, could you imagine securing that real estate to build golf courses nowadays? I mean, they would never happen, never going to happen. So we should thank those past generations for, for doing that. I mean, being a Californian, I think of Los Angeles, right? Think of the real estate value in Los Angeles. And then look at the, look at the golf courses that are right in Los Angeles, like in the metropolitan area. You've got Riviera, you have Brentwood. You've got Wilshire Country Club. You have Hillcrest Country Club. You've got Bel Air Country Club. You have Los Angeles Country Club, North and South, Lakeside Country Club. And these are taking up, you know, 150 acre parcels, you know, right in a metropolitan area. I mean, people should be like, oh, Rancho Park too, a public course. So people should be thankful. Like, thank you so much for the past generations for you guys securing these beautiful parkland golf courses for us to play right in a metropolitan area because it would never happen again. Yeah. So so why just say, okay, well, let's make these courses obsolete now or make them have to redesign the courses or add 500 yards to them to make them relevant or whatever to change the parameters of the game to fit because people want to hit the ball, you know, tour pros want to hit it 350 yards. I mean, I think that if you hit a 250-yard drive now in in America, here we have this, you know, in football. I mean, that's that's walking two and a half football fields between your shots. That's a lot. Does it really need? Do we really need to make that more? I mean, if I hit a drive out there 250 yards, I'm going to have to walk two and a half football fields 
to get to my golf ball? Do I really need to go three and a half football fields in my golf ball? I mean, at some point you just need some common sense, you know, which I think is really lacking at some level of, you know, somebody's not thinking this through very well. So the, the good news is the classic tracks, a lot of them are still there. They're fairly intact and you can still play them. I still play the old game with persimmon and blades and go out on the classic tracks and, I, you know, you know, when you and I played Olympic club together, I remember that day well. And, you know, we just played it at like 6,800 or not 6,900. We were like, let's play how Hogan played it. And, you know, the opener, let's, you know, let's compare our game with how those guys did. I mean, if we're, if we're hitting at 320 yards and we're hitting wedge into every hole, and then we walk off the course and say, Hey, I shot 66, just like Van Hogan did in 19, you know, 62 or whatever. I mean, is that really a fair comparison when we're out there hitting it 50 yards farther than than those guys were? I mean, it doesn't. I'd like to play that course and say, hey, wow, that's really incredible that they were able to shoot scores like that, you know, or I played as well as they did. You know, I actually played as well as those guys did. You know, I'm hitting at the same distance, whatever. To me, an apples and apples comparison of my skills against the great players of the past. I mean, to me, that has some significance and meaning to me personally, Right. you know. But um, if I'm bombing it way out there and coming in with wedges in every hole, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really mean as much. I can pretend, you know, I can pretend that it does. But ultimately, when I go to bed at night, it doesn't. I know. I know it's not the same. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's cut it off for today. We should do another one or at least a few more because we I'm sure we got a lot more to talk about. But yeah, what I may ask is. You know, if some people want to fire in some questions over the next time that we could answer in a in a different episode, we'll sort of do our own ABS Bradley Hughes Golf podcast together. And before we leave, give us an insight again about the advanced ball striking, the new up and running site again, get where everyone can find out about it. Yeah, you can go to advancedballstriking.com. And there'll be links to the uh, teaching platform and also to the forum. Or if you want to go right to the forum, it's advanced. I'm sorry, it's forum.advancedballstriking.com. And that'll take you right to the forum. You'll see all of Bradley's threads on there. They're, they're still intact. All kinds of great stuff in there uh, that Bradley has shared with uh, the ABS community for many, many years. And they've all been, uh, <clears throat> they're all back up online and save for posterity now so so until yeah it's the, been great until the next uh technical issue <laughs> yeah until, yeah i think change the platforms again and mess it all up yeah i think we're in good shape now uh, we have control over all that stuff we have our own server now we've got our own on DigitalOcean. we've got our own nobody you know it's not we're not on like a company like we have our own server it's us so nobody can mess with us we don't have to deal with any uh, things being blocked or censored by Instagram or Facebook or YouTube or, you know, whatever, when they say, you know, you can't, this isn't acceptable. And not that we're sitting there, you know, trying to do anything. It's just that nobody can come in and say, this is, you know, you can't post that or whatever. Right. You know? And is the, uh, is the forum part open for discussion? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 People just sign up. And, and jump in and start posting. It's a I, great... I better get back on there and add to my my stuff. Yeah, right. <laughs> Ten years later, here's where... Well, now I'm Bradley Hughes. I'm the great teacher of the world. And 
No, no, it's great. I'm so happy the success that you've had. Um, it just makes me feel great to think that, you know, what we did is actually worked out on two. How many guys have, are you working with now? Uh, it comes and goes, you know, what two approaches are like. Some will jump on, do a little bit. Some will, the, the ones that persevere are the, the better ones. So it's been anywhere from, you know, 12, 10 people at one time. That, that was more than enough. So I think yeah, about yeah. Four, four or five right now. So that's, that's still plenty. So how often are you showing up on the tour sites now? Well, I don't go to the tour much. I, uh, you know, I'm a believer in do your weeks work in off weeks and they don't need you out of the tournament. My, I go and observe sometimes, like maybe once every two months or every six weeks, I might go to a tournament for a few days. Sometimes I'll go just for practice days and other times I'll just go for tournament days and, and watch what we need to, to do. You know, I like the players to be self-sufficient. I, I'm there to help them, but when the gun goes off, they got to be there knowing what they're having to do. Yeah, well, they, they should all know what to do, I would think. Well, they're under good good guidance with you. I know that. So it's exciting. It's really great to see. And, um, you know, I, are you are you working with some of the European tour guys at all too? I've just, yeah, I've just started working with a couple of them. I have done in time, you know, some online, but a couple of guys in person too, so. That's uh, it's fun to watch. I've even done a few of the girls, worked with them a little bit. Christina Kim's a big fan of the down under board, and I've spoken to her a lot about her swing and work. So it's been fun. Nice to uh, to get some recognition and especially to help people. That's what we're all in it for, to make people get better, whether the beginner, amateur, pro or PGA player. Yeah, people like to get better at golf, that's for sure, as we all do. Well, it was great catching up, Bradley. Um, nice to um, be back in the game a little bit and doing some teaching and having the site up and working with some of the, you know, students that need help. So, excellent. I'll be back on ABS. We'll get on there and talk about some stuff, and I'll catch you again soon. Okay, sounds good. Goodbye, everybody. Well, that's it for another episode of Bradley Hughes Golf Podcast. For more information about my golf instruction, check out my website, bradleyhughesgolf.com. If you like to watch golf videos to make you a better player, sign up for my members-only site, bradleyhughesgolf-members.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.